Welcome to Distant Voices, a podcast presented by Willamette Week. Join us every Wednesday to hear members of the Willamette Week newsroom talk to Oregonians about how they are overcoming the pandemic. Come back on Saturdays to listen to Dive, a podcast hosted by me, Hank Sanders, that takes a look at the Willamette Week cover story and includes interviews with the biggest names in the state. You can enjoy more episodes of these podcasts on this channel and learn more about our work at wweek.com. Enjoy this episode of Distant Voices. Hello, this is Matt Singer. I am the Arts and Culture Editor at Willamette Week, and my guest today is Jason Brandt. He is the uh, President and CEO uh, for the um, Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. And uh, the reason we're talking to Jason is because we are uh, once again facing a um, uh, elevated risk for uh, for COVID-19 in Multnomah County. This Friday, we will be uh, going up to the extreme risk category which means that indoor dining um, at uh, restaurants across uh, Multnomah County and um, 14 other counties in Oregon uh, will be suspended uh, yet again. Um, so Jason, I guess my first question is, what is uh, Orla's kind of stance uh, on this uh, uh, new sort of, this, this, this once again happening and coming down from the governor? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, the restaurant operators uh, affected by this in the 15 counties, including Multnomah, are incredibly frustrated and, and feeling very challenged by yet another round of restrictions that they're being asked to put on their shoulders for the betterment of society. And remember that, you know, all the stats and all the data tracking that we've done, our industry has always been less than 5% of the COVID transmission problem. So one of the main things that I, I like to talk about is does this decision even make sense when it comes to statewide uh, restrictions or, or are they disproportionate uh, in putting you know, restrictions on the backs of one industry uh, when, when COVID is surrounding us in our communities uh, across the state? It just such a targeting and uh, consequential environment for our operators compared to so many other sectors, it just feels incredibly disproportionate for being less than 5% of the challenge that we face due to the pandemic. Um, how badly is this particular shutdown at this stage um, going to hit, going to hit uh, uh, restaurants? You know, I, I, guess, I guess I'm wondering if, um, you know, at this stage, is there evidence that, you know, people were going back to indoor dining more now that you know we've had this vaccination rollout like you know is it going to is it going to significantly hurt these these businesses this time around absolutely i mean we've been saying this for a while over the last 13 months uh, since dealing with covid but remember that restaurant operators never buy their business or their square footage or footprint hoping that they can use 50% or less of the space right and the margins in our industry they just don't pencil um, when you can only utilize a limited amount of your footprint. So for those restaurants that have outdoor space, you know, there's some pretty sweet corridors in Portland where you can set up outdoor environments. Uh, those places probably can do, still do okay, depending on how much space they're working with. One of the details in the new regulations for uh, impacted counties and the restaurants within them is you can have up to 100 total people outdoors starting Friday instead of 50 if you're in the extreme risk category. So there are some restaurants that will be helped a great deal by that. 
but it's some restaurants, not most restaurants. And that, that change for some means nothing uh, in terms of helping them out. So yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag. There's winners and losers again. I remember too that uh, a lot of folks out there have COVID fatigue. They have already changed their behavior about what they're going to be doing in their life. And so they see this restriction come down in Multnomah. Washington County is still open. You can go to the coast. You can stay overnight, uh, go and dine indoors at restaurants all along the coast. You can go east and dine in restaurants in Hood River. So uh, the decision-making process leaves a lot to be desired in our opinion, and we are struggling with it mightily. Um, you know, your your so your your stance is that this is you know these when these things happen and when we go up and down risk levels that um, it disproportionately hurts the you know the restaurant world. Um, what do you feel would be what would you feel would be fair at 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 this point? I mean, what what would be fair to uh, the restaurant world when we do still have to do these shutdowns or if we still have to do these shutdowns? What what would make sense to you? Yeah, great question. I love this question because this is what I think we're missing the mark on in Oregon. We need a dual messaging campaign right now, immediately in this state. That doesn't have to do with economic restrictions. It has to do with focusing in on those that have been fully vaccinated. Remember, over 1 million Oregonians that have been fully vaccinated that are protected from the virus. We should be encouraging them and incentivizing them to get back out there and get back to their lives uh, and enjoy their lives again. And then for those that have not yet been able to get fully vaccinated, they're either in the process, you know, to be defined as kind of that designation, or they haven't gotten in line yet. And we need to encourage those folks, folks to hunker down, protect themselves, and make sure that they get in line as soon as possible. That should be what we're doing. We don't need government restrictions at this stage in the crisis when everyone knows what COVID is and the risks associated with it. What we need is communication to support and encourage and inspire more people to get vaccinated, like the 1 million people that have already gotten it done. And we're missing the mark on this. And it's, it's truly a travesty. I mean, uh, there's, it's the, the plate is set, right? The table is set on this. It's so easy for us to get out there and make sure people know that there's a benefit and when you do go through the process and get vaccinated as we all should. So just, just so I understand, you know, you, you feel that like, you know, even if, you know, cases are rising now at this, at, at this stage of the pandemic, that um, there shouldn't be, there should be no uh, extra restrictions, you, you think at this point, that it's, it's simply at this point, we should just be focusing on messaging and getting people vaccinated? Well, no, I mean, so I'm just talking about like, restrictions where you have to limit the number of people that are coming into your business. That doesn't mean that you still, you still have to follow physical distancing protocols, you know, face covering protocols, uh, limiting the size of your groups and your gatherings. So those are all kind of standard fare, kind of think of those as the baseline requirements that are most effective in mitigating virus spread. But what I'm talking about is we should be moving past the point where we're targeting specific businesses and industries, right? When we have our kiddos back in school, um, many of which don't have symptoms, but then they bring the virus home to their parents that are in their 30s and 40s 
maybe they haven't had the chance to get vaccinated yet. So, we, and that's just one example of an activity that's happening all around us while the government is asking us to take the, purport, the disproportionate burden on our shoulders when we have the data to show where the virus is spreading and in what environments it's spreading in. Um, well, you know, we, we are sort of, you know, the, the finish line, I guess, is theoretically in view. Um, I hope on, so. On this pandemic, obviously, you know, who knows, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's difference of opinion on that, but, you know, it seems like, you know, we can at least get some sense of what the landscape is going to look like. What would, what would you like to see um, the government do in terms of, um, you know, after, once we're kind of beyond the, the, the actual health crisis to um, sort of help the restaurant industry get back on its feet. What would you ideally like to see happen in terms of like assistance and kind of maybe trying to get the, the industry back on, on its feet kind of post pandemic? Yeah, I think the great question. The most important thing I think we can do is realize that the restaurant revitalization fund at the national level is only a down payment on what the industry needs to recover and bring our people back and get our teams back in a place where they can serve our guests. So, you know, we have this massive $28.6 billion restaurant revitalization fund for the nation. And that grant application process is starting to open uh, in the coming days here. So a lot of information going, uh, going out to operators across the country on that. But $28.6 billion for over 1 million restaurants, not enough. So we're going to need Congress to act and realize that that is, in fact, a down payment. And remember that, that that's just a down payment for 2020 challenge. we got to remember that we're sitting here talking about new wrinkles in our fight against COVID, and we're in 2021 now. So the Restaurant Revitalization Fund does nothing to address the challenges, the crises, and the suffering that our folks are going to be facing in 2021, in addition to everything that they've already gone through in the year 2020. In our second interview, Mark Zussman and Aaron Mesh interview Carrie Timchuk, who is the executive director of Oregon Historical Society, as well as Mary Faulkner, the vice president of the board of Oregon Historical Society. Thanks for listening. Let, let's talk about this. Um, you've been given the task of developing curriculum for elementary schools about the, about the history of the city of Portland. That strikes me as quicksand, and I'm just wondering how you're going to go doing that, who you're going to be advising um, at a moment in time when you're being criticized rightly or wrongly for not portraying a full enough history of this city. You're now going to be doing so in a formal way in the schools, and I'm just wondering how are you going to navigate that? Well, we, I mean, obviously, they, they have, uh, will supervise and approve and of whatever we do, we uh, under the the contract, we we are hiring a curriculum writer, uh, you know, someone with the education, with experience, with the background that does this type of type of stuff, and we will provide all the uh, uh, you know the materials, the back, the artifacts, the documents, everything that we have here on the history of Portland. Uh, but obviously, Portland Public Schools has the final say 
they will either approve of it or say this works, this doesn't, you know, fix this, fix that. So I'm uh, just wondering. Well, if my understanding is, is that they want this. That yes, in public schools, they they don't want to be in the business of doing what Oregon Historical Society does, and they want a partnership. And you know, saying that, you know, I think anybody who looks at history and they don't see themselves in it as much as they used to, you know, certainly if you're a white American uh, compared to a first or second generation American for, um, of color, you know, I think OHS is really giving the opportunity to tell a broader story about our history and keep adding to history. And um, that that's something that the schools want a partnership with on. Yeah, they, the, the schools reached out to us. We, we, you know, we weren't seeking this. Uh, they contacted us because they've, they've loved what we've been providing to their teachers and the curriculum we do have uh, online. Uh, and so they they proposed this to us and I think we worked out a good arrangement. And if, frankly, if it works, they'll probably come back to us for more. If it doesn't work, then we've learned the lesson. The other question is, Kerry, when we last visited, um, I think we asked you about the whole issue of renaming statues, schools. Yep. And... Um, if I recall, you were fairly blunt. You thought we were rushing to judgment. I guess I'm wondering whether or not I'm recalling. No, I, I don't. I don't said correctly. And if you've refined your position at all. No, I don't think we're rushing to judgment. Uh, I mean, I think anytime people talk about history, I think it's it's a good thing. Why did there just needs to be a process? Nobody's got the right to tie some chains to the back of their truck and to drag down uh, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, any, you name them, who are on public grounds. And, uh, you know, we don't, the, the statues that have all been knocked down are the ones, the city owns them. We don't own them. We have nothing to do with them. But that is not the way to tackle this issue. Uh, the way to tackle the issue is to have a, to have a process, a conversation, a community-wide engagement where, hey, should these statues be here? Do we want to replace them? Should we replace them with, who do we replace them with? I mean, that's the way to do it. Uh, you, well, you and conversely, if somebody went up and tore down York up at Mount Tabor, it would be very upsetting to the community. You know, I mean. So, um, I'm sorry, I forgot. We have renamed at least one school in the city yes. of Portland. Already, Wilson right? High School is now Ida B. Wells. Right. So was that uh, was that done too quickly without appropriate process? No, that, that was a long process, as I, as I recall. So they went through meetings and the students voted and they did research. I mean, and, and, and that's the way to do that. There are people out there, of course, I'm not one of them, who say, you know, oh, gosh, this is, you know, you can't change history. And, uh, Confeder you know, A, Confederate generals, and thankfully, we don't have any up in Oregon. They were all traitors in my book, uh, and the statues weren't put up uh, after the Civil War. They were put up in the Jim Crow era to send a message. Um, but the people who say, you know, once the statue's up, it should always be there, I always tell them, you know, do you think that after when he retired after his career as an American hero and the LA school district named the OJ Simpson Elementary School, do you think that should still be there? Uh, you know, uh, no. Uh, things change, uh, you know, perspectives change. So I'm all for, uh, and Woodrow Wilson was an awful racist, no doubt about it. Uh, he put, he moved America backwards. Uh, Roosevelt and Taft had started to move America forward. They were allowing blacks to work in the federal government, to manage people in federal government. Wilson, absolutely not. He, he took it backwards. He was an awful racist. Showed the movie Birth of the Nation in the White House. 
you know, the fact that his name's on a high school in Oregon when he had absolutely nothing to do with Oregon, of course. Uh, yeah, I, I was all for getting getting rid of that name. So, uh, a question for you on the same on the same note. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of public outrage and uh, conversation regarding uh, the repeated destruction of your front windows. But I know that I know the damage this time around was twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, how much are you raising off of this? Uh, off of this one, I you know, I know off of the other one, uh, people you know did donate money, and and we were very honest when they called and asked, and we said we have insurance. Uh, you know, the the, the the damage was insured, uh, and any money that was given to us for security, that type of thing, for windows. We have used for to upgrade and other security, new cameras, new this, new that, new you know, new doors. But the, the we we had insurance, we were insured. Uh, I don't know, you know, like a lot of businesses in downtown Portland, I don't know if insurance companies what our renewal rate is going to be when the, when the time comes mm -hmm. uh, to renew insurance. It's going to be much bigger. I you know can get. Well, I'm so grateful that donor the laminate that was placed after the October one really helped. We did we did upgrade after the October one to windows that are impenetrable. You can kind of crack them, spider web them. You can't break through them, which of course they did last time and threw the flare in and stole the quilt and did all the damage that they did then. This time they could only this guy could only uh, shatter. Three, uh, three of the windows. I'm just curious, and I'm sorry, I'm going to keep asking this. If you've seen a fundraising rise since October, since October, uh, you know, we we saw an initial hit after the after the break-in, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, but I don't, not not anything that has lasted long term. Uh, of course, and we've been going out. Uh, you know, frequently, as all nonprofits have during this pandemic, to say, "Hey, you know, many of our revenue streams were compromised." Uh, you know, admission outside of Multnomah County, of course, has dropped, you know, off the face of the earth. Uh, our annual History Makers Gala canceled. You can't, you know, can do a gala. Uh, gift shop, bookstore sales down. You know, all our revenue streams uh, uh, were, were compromised. So we we. And when the pandemic hit, we immediately uh, cut expenses. I froze, uh, I took a, a, a pay cut. I, all senior management took a pay cut to see, you know, what it was gonna take to ride through, uh, you know, the, the pandemic. And it's still, of course, impacting us, so. I think from what I recall in development meetings is that there was a big jump in membership renewal, uh, which was exciting because I think people, can't physically come down and protect the building. So the best way to support us and support what we're doing is through membership. That was a nice, and if you're implying that we're encouraging vandalism to get more donations, <laughs> I wish we were that clever. <laughs> no, no implication whatsoever. I was yeah. just curious about unintended consequences. Although I did, I did get an email from one of the anarchy type supporters accusing me of stealing the African-American quilt in October. They were sure that I had done that to pin it on the, uh, uh, the anarchists. So if, if only I had thought about that, so. And that, by the way, that's running this uh, 2025, $30,000 uh, to re put that quilt back to uh, 
know, to salvage it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Distant Voices. Thank you to everyone who was a part of this episode, including the guests and Willamette Week Newsroom. Also, special thank you to ampmusic.co and Heather Witte for the music that you heard on this podcast. For more great content, be sure to follow Dive by Willamette Week on all podcast platforms. Join us Saturdays for our Dive podcast show and follow along with Willamette Week's content at wweek.com and on all social platforms. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.